Hello and welcome to a special podcast from home edition of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, and today we are talking with Gabe Cooper. He is the CEO of Virtuous Software, a CRM and marketing platform helping charities increase their impact and do more good. I will say Gabe has partnered with us on a couple of research studies this year, so you'll hear more from us and Gabe and Virtuous. Uh, big thanks to them for partnering with us on some cool research. But that's not the focus of conversation today. We are talking about a book that Gabe is written called Responsive Fundraising. So in the conversation, Gabe kind of walks through what is responsive fundraising, how is it different than being donor-centric, uh, what are some of the barriers stopping organizations, what are some of the key tenets of it, and shares some case studies and examples of organizations uh, being more responsive and how it is helping them have success. We do talk a little bit about COVID-19 and some of the responses of organizations and some of the things that we're seeing as we're kind of commenting and kind of all reacting and living this in real time. So there's a conversation there. And then uh, obviously share more about where you can find out about Gabe's work and the book. So that's what we have on tap for you today. Uh, I hope you're safe. I hope you're healthy. Thank you, as always, for listening. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. I said, Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Hi, Gabe. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Brady. So I think I think you're the first guest that we've had on twice now on the Generosity Freak Show. So congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. It's an honor. I love what you guys are doing. Plus, you know, I'm I'm sure I'm bugging the heck out of you to get more airtime. And so <laughs> no, I'm grateful you let me saying- through. You know how they have on Saturday Night Live, they have like the five timers club. They have a, a blazer. We're going to have to figure out, you know, like our own version for two timers or maybe maybe we'll have to have you on more and then we'll give you a, a blazer, a five timers blazer. That's right. Like that. the, the Steve Martin, <laughs> Tom Hanks, you know, the, yeah, the Mount it. Rushmore of SNL. That's kind of be great. So, uh, I mean, we partly love having you on because of the, the work that you do and you're such a, a nice a nice man, but you're also one of the first people to give me work when I started my own company. So I feel indebted to you still to this day. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'd forgotten about that. That seems like forever ago now. It's it seems like forever ago, and uh, we can we can keep it there. But uh, thanks again for for tossing me some work. So, anyways, we're we're not here to talk about my past work experience. We're here to talk about a book that you have uh, coming up on responsive fundraising. That's what I want to talk about today. So, responsive fundraising. Can you just define this for us and maybe articulate how it's different than like donor centric fundraising, if at all? Yeah, it's a great question. I I mean, donor-centric fundraising really is the starting point for responsive fundraising. And donor-centric fundraising just says, hey, you should you should be focused on what your donors need and want. They're not just the means to an end. They're in the cause with you, and um, you should be focused on them. And so responsive sort of takes it uh, a little bit farther and to say, look, there's a uh, Donor-centric is great, but how do we get there? And so I would say responsive is, is kind of the framework and the playbook for how to move from where you are now to a more donor-centric model. Um, and and honestly, it's it's a little bit of the technology and tactics that you need to get there. I think the frustration for nonprofits is they're like, yeah, no kidding, we should be more donor-centric, but <laughs> so what, right? So the how is right. the hard part. 
Gotcha. Yeah, so it's a bit more like evolution as opposed to revolution around donor centric. Yes. Um, so why is this approach or kind of renewed emphasis on this approach being tech enabled? Like, why is this so important now? I don't mean now in light of, you know, COVID-19 necessarily, but I mean now in light of just where we are in the world of fundraising. Yeah, I think we've seen a, a big trend in the last 15 years or so, a move away from mid and low tier donors giving to nonprofits. I saw a stat that over a decade, we've lost 25% of mid and low tier donors in the U.S. Um, and so right now, major donors are carrying the water. I mean, major donors have stepped up and, and are helping giving increase overall. The problem is when the bubble burst, and I, I think we may be seeing a little bit of this right now, it's mm. a little bit prophetic, but um, when the economy tanks or major donors aren't able to cover that gap, you're left with a bit of a generosity crisis. So then the question becomes, you know, why did mid and low tier donors stop giving? Why are they not as engaged as they used to be? And and how do we recover from that? And so that's really what we're trying to get at. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I know uh, we we often, when, when I talk or when I've seen you talk, we often have the same kind of intro talking at declining uh, retention rates, declining number of donors. So people can say that philanthropy is growing. Yay. But you peel back a few layers and the, the picture isn't quite so so pretty, especially if you care about the the value and the virtue of giving, right? It's not just all dollars and cents and how do we get money in the hands of organizations that need it. Like I think I definitely believe and I think you would too. There's a real power and value of people giving charitably in terms of their personal health and well-being and you know, there's there's virtue and value and fewer fewer people doing it, it's bad for all of us, including those that aren't giving, you know, and we have a responsibility to to do that. Yeah, I completely um, agree. I think the that what you just said is generosity changes the heart of a giver. And as a culture, if we're more generous and we give more, it's just better for human flourishing generally. And so we don't want to see people not giving. But I think there is a little bit of a dollars and cents value too in that um, typically mid and low tier donors keep giving through economically hard times. They just sort mm-hmm. of set it and forget it. And so it creates predictable, sustainable revenue for your mission over time. Um, the other thing too is is your major donors come from somewhere, right? They, yeah. they just don't pop up out of thin air. And so, unless you're building a pipeline of people you can have conversations with, um, your major donors ultimately are going to dry up as well. And so, I do think there's a there's definitely a sort of an altruistic aspect that we care about deeply, but there's a numbers and sense part of it too. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And uh, I was just in uh, one of our kind of roadmap. Um, meetings where we do this three-month deep dive into people's data and we show kind of all the data and rationale behind the strategy that we're proposing. And one of the things that we started adding is basically uh, where do your major donors come from in terms of their giving level and history. And it's really interesting when you start showing people like one out of four of your major donors that are now giving you like $100,000 plus gifts uh, gave to you less than $100. You know, like that's what that's what started. So now there's always exceptions to the rule, but even just painting that picture is like, holy smokes. So then, you know, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out if we want more $100,000 gifts, you know, years from now, 
we got to get more hundred dollar donors now because yes. some of them honestly will turn into that revenue you know later on so it's one of the nice things that that we can do with data and products and tools like yours can help make that easier for people to figure out so that they can make those decisions so without going too too much into tech right now though that's a big component what what are maybe some of the key tenets of responsive fundraising or some of those key pillars of that that roadmap or playbook that you're talking about yeah i think um for people new to this concept the easiest way to think about it is think about the kind of things you do for your major donors And so um, when you're trying to nurture relationships with people that could give you a lot of money, number one, you're going to listen. So that's the first um, tenet is you're going to figure out what motivates them, what's their intent, where are they at in their stage of life? Like, why are they attracted to your cause? It's because the cause impacted their family directly or it's tied into their community. And so you're going to listen and figure out what makes them tick and build the relationship. And then you're going to respond to them based on what you learned. And so if you, Hmm. if you find out, look, they're not passionate about having their name on a building, they really just want to help in some other way, then you're not going to talk to them about having their name on a building, right? So you're going to respond in a way um, that's personal based on what you've heard. And then finally, you're going to suggest. And so the it's listen and then connect personally and then suggest, you're going to suggest the right next step for each donor. And by the way, the suggestion is sometimes a gift, um, a financial gift, but sometimes it's not. A big part of being responsive is understanding that you have to give to donors before they give to you. And so thinking about how you're giving value to donors and helping them think about how they can engage with you that's not just financial. And so those are sort of the the big tenets, the big frameworks. And then so then it becomes a question of, okay, I can do that for my top 100 but then how do I begin to scale that out to the next 10,000, 100,000 people on my file? And so I'm doing that same thing. I'm listening at scale. I'm connecting in a personal way. And then I'm suggesting the best next step to drive generosity. So what does that uh, look like or what are some some common barriers? I know one that that kind of jumps out to me and it's obviously the trigger point is the listening side of things of just, you know, people might be saying, how on earth do I, you know, listen to 100,000 donors or 10,000 donors or 1,000, whatever the number is, how do you listen at scale? Because if you don't do that, then the other stuff's you know, kind of irrelevant, right? So how, how can organizations listen? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And, and that really is the crux of it. People say, look, we only got three staff members. It's hard for us to listen <laughs> to our major donors, yeah. much less the next 10,000 people. And so I think the easiest way to think about this is just think about your experience with, um, I'll use Netflix, uh, you know, working from home and having my kids at home. We have been on (laughs) Netflix a ton lately, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I guarantee you when I go home, Netflix is going to tell me, look, I need to watch the next episode of the F1 show about F1 racing because I'm hooked on that right now. So good. (laughs) So good. I need to watch uh, 1917. I need like it's going to tell me and it's going to have a profile for my daughter that tells her the next thing that she needs to watch as a a girl in kindergarten. So every brand experience we have right now, whether it's Netflix or Uber, or I always joke about my local pizza place knows what I want to eat before I even pick up (laughs) the phone. Those brands are able to create a personalized experience for us. And the way they do it is they suck in a lot of data about me and then they try to make sense of the data. And so for a nonprofit, what that means is looking at data signals that you have available. So a great example of this is tying into social media, figuring out which of your donors are uh, have a lot of Twitter followers. 
right? Or tying into geolocation to figure out how your donors are, are, con are concentrated around a geography or putting a pixel on your website. And so you can see which donors are engaged digitally and look at what they're visiting. And so you can start tying where people are hanging on your website to their intent and their motivation around your organization. All of mm -hmm. these digital signals are available to us today. And we don't have to sort of go donor by donor by donor figuring these out. We can sort of pull in all this data at one time and begin to make sense of it at scale, just listening to the signals that are already available. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I think one of the the things when we talk about this kind of more uh, personalized listening approach, a people often get creeped out <laughs> of all the stuff that we can know and learn about uh, people, which is probably a whole another discussion. <laughs> but then there's this question of like, well, you know, how personalized can we can we really be? Is it like you know every single individual donor gets individually different messages, or is this where we can do just like you know segmentation on a more reasonable level? Uh, like what is, what does that look like? Yeah. And I think there's, there's baby steps into this. I think doing, you know, in a normal direct mail program, adding segmentation, that's a little more nuanced around intent rather than just blasting the same thing to everybody with a slightly different mm -hmm. envelope. I mean, I think it can start there, but I, I really don't think you can be too personal, right? I think you mm -hmm. can be creepy. I think if you're listening to people in ways they don't know they're being listened to, right. bringing that up to them and it creeps them out. Yes. But I think giving is one of the most personal things that we'll ever do. Right? My mom had stage four cancer. I sat in Mayo Clinic with her for like three months while she had it. It, it impacted me personally more than just yeah. about anything that I've ever done. And so when Mayo communicates with me, if they ask about my mom and ask if there's other ways that I want to be engaged, like that doesn't feel weird or creepy. It feels like they mm. care, like they listen, mm -hmm. they know who I am and they care. And so I, I think it would be hard for us to ramp this up to where we're more personally engaged than that person is already personally engaged with the cause, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think one, one of the concepts that I found really useful when thinking about, um, you know, more advanced marketing tactics or more innovative things is thinking almost like people on a bell curve. And we'll often re reject new ideas or strategies based on the people on both extreme ends of it, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the people that are like, well, they're like, you know, they love us so much. They're so invested. Let's give them what they want. Or these people always are upset when we do this and we overreact to each side, knowing yeah. that the vast majority of people are actually within the normal bell curve. And that's, that's part of the question that we get asked a lot for personalization is like, well, you know, what if someone donated to a Uganda project, but they don't actually care about Uganda more than they care about, you know, Zambia. And it's like, well, that could very well be true. So what's the alternative? You talk to them based on something you don't know, or you talk to them something based on you do know. Yeah. Like, I'll talk to them on the basis of Uganda and take my chances of being wrong, but at least it's a step in the right direction. So we can often poke holes in this strategy based on those, you know, real positive or real, you know, negative experiences. And I like that you talked about that baby steps. You know, this isn't about going from zero to 60. And now all of a sudden we have, you know, personalized trigger emails going out all over the place. It's like, how do we move beyond RFM models or just very basic yeah. segmentation or no segmentation, which we see a lot in our research studies to something that is more, you know, personal and relevant, right? Yeah, no, I like completely agree with that. And, and 
there, the tenet of marketing sort of generally is if you're saying everything, you're saying nothing at all. <laughs> right. right. And so, yeah. um, and the thing that you guys are good at too is, is just test it. Right. I mean, what we see is look, like if somebody's interested in Uganda, if they're hanging out on those pages in your website, send them some stuff about Uganda, watch the response rate. Like if yeah. it goes up really high, don't complain about it because one person also wanted to know about another country or yeah. don't give them some other information at the bottom of the email about the other work you're doing. So they have an opportunity yeah. to engage, just don't right. lead with it. You know, these are, yeah. these are very solvable problems, I think, and you can test your way into real impact. Hey everyone, this is Brady here. Hopefully you're enjoying this chat with Gabe Cooper. If you're interested in what he's talking about, responsive fundraising, and are wanting a copy of the book, we have a few that we can give away. So if you would like one of these free copies, you can email us at podcast at nextafter.com. That's podcast at nextafter.com. Or you can find me on social. I'm at Brady Josephson on Twitter or slash Brady Josephson on LinkedIn. Or connect with us uh, next after at nextafter underscore, and you can search for nextafter on LinkedIn. Find a way to connect with us, message us, email us, and uh, let us know you're interested in getting a copy of the book, and we will find a way to get at least some of you a copy of the book. All right, uh, hopefully you're enjoying the the conversation so far, and back to the interview. Yeah, and the other thing that that we found is um, the more personal approach doesn't always have to be necessarily about exactly what their interests are it can be just our tone and approach right so being more open-handed saying like what are you interested in asking that question giving them a quick survey or just removing some design elements like this is also a way to be personal it's not personalized but it's more personal and we see that that has a huge impact on you know engagement and response rates as well which is you don't need any data really to to take that more personal approach you know Uh, and when you can combine those two, I think that's really where, you know, potential a lot of success is. Yeah. Um, I think there's two things around that. One is just the, the best practice, like don't send from a do not reply email, (laughs) right? Use somebody's first name, make it look like it came from a person and not a machine. These are like sort of, uh, fundraising one-on-one kind of things. But I think it's, it gets exciting when you're able to take it that one step further. I think one of the things that comes up, I know it comes up for you guys is, look, our, our people don't want to receive three mail pieces and eight emails in a month. They're worn out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. maybe, but um, like I got this shirt at probably either Huckberry or Stag Provisions because that's where the two places where I buy my clothes, right? They could okay. send me eight emails a day and I would be stoked about it because all their emails are hyper relevant. They're targeted mm. at me and they're exactly what I care about. And so for nonprofits, it's really thinking about, look, you can communicate with people, but if you're doing it in a way that adds value, so you're not just like more money, more money, more money. So the person feels like an ATM machine, but you're being personal and adding value. You're, you're building a relationship. You're not wearing somebody out. And so I think those, those simple changes can really make a big difference without getting overly sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the huge challenge. That's, that's probably the number one question we get when we teach and train on emails. How many emails should I send or can I send? And like, we just, we've stopped answering the question because it's so difficult to know. Like if you send crap, zero. If you send awesome, (laughs) like 
hundreds yeah. you know like it, there's and there's no way to tell the difference it's it's really really difficult um you know we've kind of alluded to some like of our research and some of stuff with your clients but you know throughout the book you kind of talk about some some case studies and some different examples can you share one or two of those that just stand out as examples maybe of organizations that are kind of applying these principles or living out the responsive fundraising you know methodology and having success yeah i mean I, there's a couple of great examples one is this is an example of exactly personalization, but I think this is great. They showed up at your conference last year and I love them, but it's sick kids. And so um, sick kids is still doing sort of like mass marketing or broadcast style. Like they make videos that are accessible for a lot of people, but what they learned was, Hey, uh, you know, we have mostly, you know, middle-aged white women giving to our cause. How do we start creating, um, media that mobilizes tribes of people. So beginning with men, but then making identifying leaders within their tribe to raise up, to give as a community together. And so if you haven't seen sick kids videos online, you know, make sure you're by yourself somewhere because you're going to cry <laughs> for sure. Get some tissues. But I think yeah. they're a good example. Um, the ones we've seen more practically, I think are uh, we had an organization during the last hurricane that hit South Carolina that used geolocation to identify all their donors that were in a region that was impacted by uh, hmm. the hurricane and then used marketing automation to send a set of emails, just checking in and making sure everybody was okay within that and asking what they hmm. could do to help. Right. Wow. So those are great examples cool. of, of geotargeting using big data to figure out what's most relevant to people and then using yeah. marketing automation to send a series of stuff and then being grateful and giving first. Uh, I think that's yeah. a good example. We had another org that um, somebody offered a challenge grant if they could have alumni of that org step up and give. So this was like a, like a Christian ministry that did some training stuff. Uh, and so they, what they did was they identified quickly who all of their alumni were um, set up some marketing automation for email call email to reach out to just alumni to make them aware of this challenge grant. And they saw their alumni giving, you know, I think it was, they had like, a, I don't know, I can't remember, like a $25,000 challenge grant and was able to raise like net new money from alumni they had never seen before by actually targeting wow. people in a more personal way. And all the emails were about, Hey, you had a great experience going through this. I know it impacted your life. Why don't you pay it forward and give to somebody else? Right. So not yeah. again, not rocket science, but yeah, much more personal. I think that's I mean, this is why, you know, using case studies and not just talking the abstract is really useful because maybe people listening are like, oh, this sounds like so much and how crazy. And then you hear the examples and you're like, oh, that's that's like pretty dead easy actually that's really not that difficult yep. i think one of the things that that is, stands out to me and i mean we try to be very like personal and relevant and one of the the um, the fallout from that or one of the consequences is customer service and support mm -hmm. right if if you start being a lot more personal and engaging you better be prepared for people to be engaging with you they yep. respond to emails they fill out surveys they'll call you they'll ask for tips they'll email you out of the blue and a lot of organizations aren't set up for that because it's normally been such one-way traffic we send from do not reply. So why would you get replies? <laughs> and then once you start making this this switch, you it's you need to be you know ready. So I think that's a, a gap that a lot of organizations maybe aren't prepared for. Is are you like your donor service, your donor stewardship, your customer service? You know all those things. This will put pressure on some other parts of your of your nonprofit. Do you see that as well with your clients that that do this well and have success? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's part of of listening honestly is is um you have to be ready for a two-way conversation. I'm and and it is going to happen inevitably, but it you know, I would say it's the it falls in the nice problem to have category. Now, now you have a bunch of really engaged donors that that feel like they're actually part of the cause with you. And so, yeah, I mean, I would say the hard part is now you got to step up and listen and serve them and respond, like have somebody on Facebook responding to comments, have somebody who can respond to emails quickly in a personal relevant way. And yes, that's going to hurt. That's actually going to impact your staff time more than setting up the personalization in some cases. Yeah. But my gosh, if you look at the lifetime value of those people, not just in their giving, but now they're megaphones for your cause within their local communities, they won't shut up. And all of a sudden you're seeing new donors come in that aren't from your traditional acquisition. You're like, where the heck did these people come from? Well, it's because, you know, Judy, that got so stoked because she communicated with her personally, she won't shut up about you and her community. (laughs) And now all these people are giving, right? I mean, that's, those are good problems to have, but yeah, you have to be prepared for that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be one of the next, and and maybe that's a little bit more of a of a revolution. We maybe next time when you come back on, we'll talk more about that side <laughs> of things. But you know, a lot of our stewardship plans are still very pretty transactional. If you give X amount in Y channel, you know, and Z date, then we will do. You know, look at our rubric, and this is what we do. Yes. As opposed to it being a lot more kind of natural, or what happens after a month, or what happens when things don't fit the rubric. This whole idea of donor care, donor support, donor stewardship is is something that I think needs maybe a little bit more revolution than evolution. Yeah. But it's these types of principles that, that will guide us, right, is listening and responding. Um, so speaking of kind of listening and responding, it's a real interesting time for all of us in the space, mm-hmm. but especially a, a book that's based on this model of responsive fundraising in the time of coronavirus and, and COVID-19. I'm just wondering if, you know, um, you're seeing some different trends or, or patterns or what clients are saying, or, you know, just, it's, it's a crazy time for all. Do you have any kind of comments or things that you're seeing on, on, on what we and others can do during this, uh, crazy time? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I said it before, but I think what we're talking about ended up being a little more prophetic than I would have liked in the sense that when you see major donors lose a third of their portfolio over a couple of weeks, then, there's going to be less major donor dollars to go around. And so Mm -hmm. um, I think it becomes more important than ever to engage people personally, to draw in everyday donors to your cause in a meaningful way and to make people feel like we're all in this together. Right. And so that becomes even more imperative. You can't just fall back on what's worked in a time like this. And so I think that's part of what we're seeing on the really practical side. I mean, I'm feeling really bad for a lot of our, especially our arch organizations right now, people mm-hmm. that aren't um, on the front lines of caring for the crisis. And they're really dependent upon like galas, like big events right, to do their right. fundraising. And gosh, a lot of those folks are hurting right now. I would say mm-hmm. um, it's, it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure those organizations can stay afloat during the mm-hmm. hard time. But I think for those organizations more than ever, they have to think about how do I meet people where they're at virtually, like how mm-hmm. not just virtual events, that's, that's a part of it, but how do I begin to use things like um, peer-to-peer fundraising or delivering value digitally through things like webinars or education that draws in those folks and makes them feel like they're a part of the cause without that personal event. So we're spending a lot of time right now helping those kind of orgs think about how do I deliver value and engage people in a personal way without everybody sort of, you know, sitting in a room together at the same time. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think what's really interesting when any anything like this, and you know, I've never seen anything like this in in my fundraising career. It's very very unique. Mm-hmm. But uh, when something like this comes up, you feel all sorts of different um, you know pain points. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, this this reveals a lot more of stuff that you probably should have been should have been doing, right? right? So even if you are an arts organization or any organization, and and you want to do this kind of response, or we need a lot of you know um, funds because our, the people that we serve are really suffering. But like, if you don't have uh, those relationships built up, if you don't have those direct point of communication, whether it's on social or more ideally email, like if those don't exist. You're, you're not even in a strong position when stuff like this happens. So I think the big thing that we've been trying to focus on is like now is the time to, yes, make sure you, you care for your staff, stay safe, respond. But like you felt that pain. How can you start putting these things in place now? So it maybe isn't this global pandemic, but there will be downturns in the economy. Like there will be other things. How do you make sure you're in a better position for these things in the future? Because you know, if you don't feel that pain, then a lot of times we don't change. And our hope is whether it's responsive fundraising or digital or exploring new tools or thinking about what happens if our galas go away. Mm-hmm. Like for us, we think what happens if email goes away? How do we raise money if just email ceases to exist? Yeah. And it's very frightening, but it's a really good thought exercise of like, well, how do we continue to do the things we do? And so that's our hope is that, you know, obviously we get through this and people are safe, but it can be a real catalyst for moving forward, right? To take, uh, digital and tech and responsive, you know, kind of moving forward. I think one of the really encouraging things that we've seen is in times like this, people ask more questions Hmm. um, than they have answers. And I think that's even in good times, man, that's such a good practice. It goes back to the idea of listening, but you know, in social media or emails, like what do you care about? Like, how can we serve you? You know, you know, where are you at? Are you okay? Kind of just the, the basic kind of questions that show you care and you signal that you're listening in a time like this, I'm seeing that all over the place right now from text messages I get to what's posted on social, but that should be as nonprofits, that should be our everyday practice. Yeah. Right. Like ask more questions and listen more than you talk. And it's going to be just massively valuable. Yeah. Well, it's, it's fascinating times and it's an interesting time, uh, for you guys too. I mean, to, to have the types of tools and technology and approach that you have is, is so great and it's, uh, you know, increasingly relevant now (laughs) and moving forward. So, uh, that's awesome. Uh, maybe like one last, last question before we close is just, um, you know, we've alluded to like tech and options and I don't want you to, you know, sell virtuous, but what, what is one of the, what are some of the barriers that you see that for people to to not be able to respond to not actually you know uh, move forward with some of these strategies and then maybe how to kind of you and your team you know help them solve that yeah I mean for us the biggest one and and I talked about this already but um, these nonprofits uh, that we work with they are doing a massive amount of work on very small staff right mm. and so the idea of adding one more thing or being more personal at scale right. is just out of the question for a lot of folks. And so I think the good news is that if you look at the for-profit space, you know, the Amazons or Netflix or Ubers, they're able to solve this problem. It's not like Amazon doesn't know to recommend that I need to reorder dishwashing. So because they have a staff member who's looking at my buying habits every day. 
it right. <laughs> they they're doing it because they're looking at big data and they have tools set up that automatically suggest things based on my preference. And so mm-hmm. from a technology point of view, the good news is that these tools to scrape data, to look at big data and do predictive analytics, and then to use marketing automation or other tools to begin to make sense of the data and respond and suggest in real time, those tools are available. So yeah, I mean, Virtuous Mm -hmm. is one of those tools, but you know, there's other things out there too that help organizations both look at big data at scale and then respond automatically. And if you can do that well, it it should actually save staff time and it frees your staff up to do the important bits of the ministry, which are you know, making the calls to donors, having a more personal touch, doing handwritten notes, getting more engaged in the mission. And so um, at the end of the day, the technology is really a way to free up that staff time while you're building relationships. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think that is a misconception too of, you know, technology or automation is like, yeah, it's a little complicated and it does take some time to set up. But once that front end kind of investment is is done, you save so many hours and time on the back end every day, every single week that you can use however you want. Call donors, get out of the office, you know, invest more in growth, whatever it can be. Whereas so many hours are spent right now on just like, you know, keeping heads above water. Yes. Uh, we, we need these tools and technology to let us get ahead. Um, so that's great. Thank you so much for, you know, taking some time um, to join and share more about your book and this approach uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, said book? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you want to learn more about uh, us or some of these ideas about responsive, you can go to virtuous, uh, virtuoussoftware.com slash responsive or just go to virtuoussoftware.com and click on responsive. Um, the book is available for pre-order on Amazon right now. And so... Um, we're doing great. There's a lot of interest in it and get a lot of pre-sales, which is, is really fun. But um, yeah, if you're interested in learning more, I um, highly suggest you pick up the book. Great. And uh, you guys have been gracious enough to give us a few free copies. So if uh, people are listening and, and want a chance to get a free copy, you can email us podcast at nextafter.com or you can share, connect with us on social next after or at Brady Josephson and we'll find a way to get you a book. So uh, thank you so much, Gabe, and uh, have a good rest of your day. Yeah, Thanks, Brady. Hi again, this is Brady, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to listen to all future episodes or maybe go back and listen to some of our past episodes, you can do so by going to generosityfreakshow.com, or you can search The Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much wherever you listen to your pods. And uh, if you have any questions or a suggested guest, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at podcast at nextafter.com that's podcast at nextafter.com and if you want to find out more about this vision to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world and what we're doing at Next After in terms of research resources and training you can find out more at nextafter.com that's nextafter.com thank you very much for listening and finally I have to say thank you to Nathan Hill our producer and mixologist this would not be possible without him so thank you Nathan and thank you once again for listening 